Hello, and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host, Jessica Rickert. Today's podcast features Mark Tyler Nobleman. Mark's work centers around writing fiction and nonfiction books for young people. Mark shares how he writes books that grab and interest people. Well, welcome, Mark. We're so excited to chat with you tonight. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Well, thanks for having me. And I am very excited to be making my return to CCIRA. It's either my third or my fourth. I can double check that before I get there. Um, So I am an author of books for young people. I've been doing this for most of my adult life. I've written both nonfiction and fiction. My main criteria is I want to write books that grab your attention. I want to tell, if it's nonfiction, I want to tell an untold story, or at least what I hope will be an untold story to most readers. And if it's fiction, I just want to surprise you. I want it to be funny or uh, just feel fresh to you in some way. And um, um, uh, something that uh, you that might grab you just from a quick, quick little glimpse or uh, a quick um, initial explanation, not a deep dive, but just I want to grab people right away. So when did this start? When did you start writing? Well, same time as everybody when I was a tiny person, uh, but I liked it at the time, unlike a lot of my peers. And so I would write short stories. I, I know I did that in high school. So that might be the earliest I can say definitively. And in college, I knew I wanted to become some kind of a professional writer. I didn't know what. And I got out of school and I stumbled into being a children's book author. That was not on my on my agenda. Not that I was against it. I just didn't think of it. And here I am all these years later, very happy with that. I mean, it's expanded into a variety of types of writing, but that is my that is my focus, really, is writing for young people and and their adults, their their loved ones who are adults, their parents, their teachers. Well, and you and I have already so people who can't see um, he and I share the love of comics. And um, so I'm kind of curious. One of your more nonfiction stories is about the sort of originally unknown second co-creator of Batman. How did you get into that story? Yes. How do you stumble across that? Where does that come from? Well, do we do? Should I explain to who to our listeners who Batman is, or do you think they already know? They probably. I hope. hope I hope they know. All right, they probably know. Let's give them that benefit of the doubt. So that is my big story. I will be talking about that in person. I don't want to spill the beans too much on that, but I'll answer your question, which doesn't spill the beans, which is that I was a comic book reader since I was, again, a tiny person. And back then it wasn't cool. Now it's cool. Now anyone can do it. Now there's no judgment. But back then it was not exactly mainstream or... um, you know, widely accepted. In fact, you know, when I was in, when I was in uh, grade school to high school, uh, I think there were only two or three mainstream superhero movies in that entire 10 or 12 year stretch. Now there's two or three a week, just to put it in perspective. Um, you know, there were the Superman movies. And then at the very end of high school, the Batman movie came out. Those were the main ones. And then there was a, there were a couple lesser ones. So it really wasn't something that was, you know, widely accepted. Um, and I, as a, as a person who became a writer, I started to pay attention not only to the fictional side, but to who created these characters. 
And I, I remember that on my 16th birthday, the cover of Time Magazine was Superman's 50th birthday. And it talked about his creators. So I was a 16 year old reading Time Magazine in my school library, you know, having an epiphany that, yeah, these characters came from somewhere. And I, I, and I was interested in that. So I don't know exactly when I learned about the story behind Batman, but I know it wasn't in college. It was after that, because in college, I have proof that I did not know about the unsung co-creator because um, this is not my proudest moment, but I'm just going to be honest with you because you're all adults. Some of uh, my friends and I would crank call each other, each other, not strangers. And this was back in the answering machine days. So our goal was to just fill up the tape, just talk until we got cut off. So I would just ramble. We would all just ramble. You know, I would just pick up a book and start reading. I would tell some crazy story from my childhood. I, and one, one of the stories I told was this, the story behind Batman. And all I mentioned was Bob Kane, the artist, the man who was credited on Batman at the time, the only person. I didn't mention Bill Finger. So as, as late as college, I had never heard of this man, who then ended up becoming the, the subject of my most, I think, my most popular book and a huge part of my life, which is, again, a story that I'll tell in great detail at the conference. But it, you know, just to, the point being that, um, you know, you can't, as we all say, as, as adults and as teachers and educators, you can't believe everything you read. Got to look further. It might be, even if it's something as huge as Batman, maybe even especially if it's something as huge as Batman, you've got to know your source. You've got to double check, make sure you're getting the true story. You, they might be, you know, pulling the wool over your eyes. Now you just made me more curious. There's no That's answers. The goal, right? I'm going to have to come see you at the conference. Please do. So That's, I can I'm get on. more info. <laughs> I want a big group. I want a big, a huge attendance. Okay. So thinking more about, because, you know, we have teachers here. And so they're trying to inspire their own next generation of authors. Um, in terms of process, how do you go about writing a book? Like what, what steps do you work through? So if it's fiction, I like to try to sketch out the, arc of the story in advance. Now you're not locked in, but it helps me to have guideposts. And when I, I teach creative writing to kids in the summer and at various times during the year, and I always tell them that you, I recommend that you do that, but don't feel beholden to it. You know, if you're writing and you, and your story goes in another direction, that's okay. You're not breaking a law, a law or a rule, but it does help to have that um, outline, especially I think the ending, because I really think with fiction, it's I think it's important. At least it helps me to have some sense of your destination, so that you get there in an exciting way. Um, I talk about it with kids by saying, um, if you know, there's let's say it's a, it's a Sunday, and your family's all hanging out looking for something to do. Someone in your family might say, "Let's go get ice cream," but you know, we're not going to go straight there. We're going to take the scenic route. Another person might say, let's just get in the car and drive and who knows where we'll end up. So in one case, you've got a destination, which you might get excited about. And then you take a roundabout way to get there because that's fun. And another, you're excited because you don't know at all where you're going. So it's just one of the two, but I just prefer knowing that we're going to get ice cream at the end. That's how I like to write that. I know that's where we're going. Now with nonfiction, it just starts with just the, 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 you know, the, the, spark of the electricity running up my spine. I mean, I read something or I hear something that I feel is so um, enticing and even better, again, if it hasn't been done before in its own book. So most of my nonfiction uh, in recent years it fits that category. It's 
people might know some of the story, of course, but it hasn't been the focus of its own book. And so I love that. I love feeling like I'm walking through the forest by myself. No one else is looking for the mushrooms or whatever you're foraging for. You're the only one. You're going to get all the best spoils. And I also just love the excitement that I see on faces of both kids and adults when I'm telling a story that, that, that is new for them. Um, so, you know, with all no love lost to Rosa Parks and Babe Ruth and, you know, any number of other uh, textbook names that get tons of picture books about them, all deserved, Muhammad Ali, and, well, a lot of the presidents are falling out of favor these days, but, you know, you know who I'm talking, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. All these people have multiple picture books by now, and they deserve them, but I want to, I want to be one of the people that writes about someone that you, you, you don't really know. So that to me is just, it's a, it's a little riskier because some, some publishers, some editors don't want to work on books that aren't pre-sold. But for me, it's the only way forward. I, I just want to be fulfilled by the, re, the process. So with fiction, I have to sketch it out a bit. With nonfiction, I just have to have that spark. And I just download as much as I can about the topic. And then I go through and it's fun because then you go through and pick out the kid-friendly parts, the parts that you know are going to excite kids. It might not be the, you know, the linear story from start. I mean, it will be linear when it's done. But, you're, you know, you might be missing big moments that are not appropriate or interesting for kids. You still have to make it a, 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 you know, a cohesive whole. So that's fun is to figure out what are the pieces of this that work best for my audience. And how like what resources do you have go to resources when you're researching for those nonfiction books? Yeah, I just use Wikipedia exclusively. I basically just rewrite Wikipedia articles and act like it's original. Wait, you're going to share this with other people? <laughs> That's no. a good one. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, well, because I'm trying to do these stories that they are more or less untold, oftentimes I can't rely on just the internet or books because, again, there's stuff out there that's never been documented. So a lot of the work I've done has been about people that are either still alive or um, people who um, died recently enough that there are people still alive who knew them. So I get original interviews with those people and sometimes original documents, you know, private documents, letters or, you know, vital records or so on that, that help fill in the story. Never been published. And if they're on the Internet, it's often because I put them there now. After, after I do the book, I put some of the research online, share the wealth and, um, you know, for the next person who might want to write about that. Of course, I do use the Internet and I do use books as well. But I'm more excited about these, you know, these quests for the things that aren't as easy to find. And sometimes you, you don't get some anywhere. I mean, right now I'm working on a book where there are two main, true story, two main characters, two main figures. They're both still alive. The story happened in the 70s. One of them gave me a lovely two-hour interview so far. And the other one, I, I, I just reached out today to this person's family, but I've been told don't expect this person to participate for reasons that will become clear when, this, when the topic is revealed. But so I, I may not get that. But I'm going to carry on anyways and just write based on what's already been documented, maybe without family. But again, some of the stuff I've written is by, about people that are long dead. So I've never, there's not even an opportunity to talk to those people. So it can be done without talking to the people involved. It's just sweeter for me if I can get their buy-in and get their, un, you know, the previously untold story. Well, and thinking about just interviewing in general, I know that. Sometimes that's a challenge to ask kids to do. So 
what are some of your tips for reaching out to someone and kind of asking for their time and their story and their information? Yeah, well, I wish I was a little kid asking because who can say no to a little kid, right? That would, that would be an advantage. But I get it. Yeah, it is an important skill. Even if you don't become a writer, it's just important to know how to ask questions of other people. Um, being appropriate, but, you know, getting the story, you know, and, and how to handle people that are difficult or mysterious or whatever. So that is a great skill. Um, I mean, for kids that are doing that for school, I mean, I, it will depend on the assignment, but let's say they don't have a specific number of questions to ask. Maybe just start with five, something that seems manageable and not overwhelming. And if you can ask them to don't think of it like an assignment, but think of it like you're just curious. What do you, what do you, what would you want to know about someone? Kids are not, they're very curious, but I mean, I have two kids of my own and sometimes they just don't, you know, they don't articulate what they want to know. It just, they just, they give up before they even start. So if you tell them, just, you know, think about what's something you want to ask someone that you think that person has never talked about or wouldn't tell you without you asking, or just try to make it a little bit more of a game and a, and a mystery. Like, can you be the one to crack the code? Can you get this person to tell you about his childhood, which he never talked about before? I don't know, make it a little bit more of a challenge. I, I haven't done that specifically with kids, but, um, you know, working on interview techniques, but, um, you know, you never, you just have to keep trying. I, if someone's, I don't know if I would emphasize this with kids, but when people say no to me, I don't, I don't hear the word no. When it comes to asking for an interview, that's, I'm not talking about other types of consent, but I will keep trying to get the story. And I, I actually put a, a bit of a burden on their shoulders saying, you might be the only person who can share this information. So for the, you know, for posterity, for scholarship, I hope that you'll, that you'll talk about it. And that doesn't always work, but I've, I'm not going to let it go without trying. It's just too important. I've had people that have died that I know know interesting things about my topics, but, but they wouldn't tell me. So I, you know, I don't want, I want to limit, mitigate that as much as possible. So basically, like we tell kids, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Ask whatever is of interest to you. So a little perseverance is valuable there too. Yeah. Um, let's see. There's so, so many different directions I could go. Um, so I'm also curious, you know, just about, you know, obviously comic books have been a passion that informed a couple books, but what are some of your interests outside of writing, outside of, um, you know, that career path that inspire you as a writer or just help you kind of feel well-rounded and give you that energy and inspiration to keep writing? Well, I mean, it's nothing original to say that I love reading, but I do. And I love running. And I can't say that it has a direct correlation to writing, but there are a lot of people that would compare writing to running because they're both typically solitary. Um, and I also, you know, as a writer, I don't want to be the person, a person who's just at a desk in a room all day, even before COVID, I wanted to get out and get some air. And, um, so that, that's a happy place for me. There's a trail that picks up right around the corner from our house. And it's my, like, it's like, it's like a second home for me to go there and listen to music and not, you know, a lot of people listen to podcasts when they run or commute or all that, but I'm so much with words all the time when I'm working that when I run, I listen to music. I give myself a chance because I don't have a commute. I don't drive anywhere every day, guaranteed. So that's my time to just listen to music and relax and um, 
get some some fresh air. Uh, and I've actually got a couple book ideas while I've been running. Uh, nothing that's sold yet, but so I don't know if the running's a help or a hindrance. But yeah, when you're out there, your head clears and you can think of things. Um, and be, and I have, as I mentioned, two kids. I love spending time with my family. Uh, they're both teenagers now, so it's not always my choice anymore. Spend time with them. I have to be penciled in or well, you know, typed in. And uh, as I mentioned, I love music. I love especially '80s music. I could do a whole talk on that, but I don't think anybody would show up. Um, maybe that's another conference. So those are my things: running, music, family. All right, I get that. Like running, I think is I don't know. It's it's cathartic. It just it helps you. You know, I yeah. I think it's it's stimulating for ideas. Yeah. And also, no no podcast, no words, music only. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. Yeah, that we're we're a dying breed. There's so much so much yeah. pressure to listen to podcasts these days. I know. Well, and I did the podcast thing for a while, but even on my commute, I don't listen to podcasts anymore. I do listen to audiobooks. My commute is for audiobooks. So yeah. since you said reading, which you know, you said not unique, which is true. Every time we talk to authors, they always have books that they love. So what are some of your favorite authors or favorite books, especially when you were younger, that have kind of led you to have the passion you have for reading and writing? Well, some of these may not be so original either, but Where the Wild Things Are, which when I revisited it as an adult, reading it to my own kids, I was really blown away about how beautifully written it is. It's not just this memorable visual journey, but the the the, the way he wrote it was so so wonderful and it's only 10 sentences which is a weird thing to realize as an adult i loved a novel called the mouse and the motorcycle by beverly cleary who just passed away i think it was last year and i loved a book that is not well known it's called david and the phoenix have you heard of that by any chance it wasn't a big you know classic book although since I've been taught, I mean, over the years, I've blogged about it and talked about it in various ways. And I, a lot of people come out of the woodwork and say, I totally remember that book. That was a big favorite of mine. But again, it never became a classic. So that was a novel written in 1957 by a man named Edward Ormondroy, who's still alive at 96. And he's a friend, I guess you could say. I did reach out to him at one point, interview him for my blog, and I met him in person. So that was a really fulfilling moment to meet someone that inspired me as a, not only as a fan to an author, but as peers, I mean, because I do that now, too. And he was uh, very gracious and very interesting in that he had never met. He had never done anything that authors today do. He'd never spoken at a conference. He'd never done a book signing. He never did a school visit. They just didn't. I mean, he, his, this book was published in 1957. It wasn't those things weren't all standard at, the, at that time. Certainly not school visits, I would imagine. So that was interesting to meet an author who has a totally different experience as a children's author that I, than I have. So those are three of my favorites as a kid. Yeah, those are three of my favorites. What about for your own books that you've written? Do you have some favorites, both fiction and nonfiction, that you love more than other books, your other books? Well, everything I've done in the last 10 or 12 years totally overrides everything I did before that. Uh, not that they weren't books of merit of some kind. I mean, I put my heart into those too, but what I've been doing recently are all things, that, topics that I handpick. 
And before that, I was sometimes doing books based on other people's um, suggestions or, you know, uh, not, not coming to it on my own. So of all of my books, I mean, my Batman book is my favorite in the sense that it became more than a book. And again, I don't, I want to tease just enough to get people to show up. Um, it, it's, it, it started off as a book and it became a, a mission and it became a very big mission that lasted many years. So that, that's a, a category unto itself. Um, and then, you know, the others I, I love in different ways too. They all, I, like with everything that we do, they have different, you know, they conjure different, you know, moments of your life. Or uh, in my case, I think about some of the struggles that each one involved and what I had to try to overcome to get the book published because nothing's come easy for me um, with writing, which is fine. If it's easy, it's, it's boring. Uh, but it isn't like I've written a book and then the next day someone says, I want that. Like it's taken a while for me with a lot of my work. And, um, but again, cause it's, I'm, I think it's cause I'm choosing topics that they, they feel are going to be a harder sell. And I tell them, well, that's what I'm here for. I'm not just going to write it and then go on a run and never come back. I'm going to help you sell it and promote it. And that's why I do conferences. That's why I go to school. I want people to, you know, enjoy the story the way I did. I wouldn't do all this work and then let it float off, you know, on its own. So yeah, the Batman book would take first place, and then um, a lot of the recent ones would be in, in tied for second. So thinking about that, you like comics. So we've asked about books, but what are some of your favorite comics or even graphic novels? Because like you and I have mentioned, there you know, once upon a time it wasn't cool to be into comics, but now like there's not that stigma around that. So. Maybe share some of your favorites, um, some newer things that are being printed and published that kids might get their hands on or that teachers might get their hands on. Because I certainly like some adult comics that I would never give to kids. And I've also had some comics that like as soon as I'm done reading, I bring into the classroom to a particular kid and I'm like, you have to read this. Here's the next one. What are are some of your favorites? Well, um, a couple of graphic novels i've read recently that i loved were flamer by mike curato which is biographical um and new kid of course by jerry craft i really liked uh i don't read tons of graphic novels by uh you know it's not i'm not i don't specifically gravitate towards those i just gravitate towards a good book whether it's graphic novel you know, prose or whatnot. Oh, another one I read this summer that I thought was great was Kent State. It's a new, it's the newest book by a guy named Durf Backdurf. And it's, it's, it's his telling of the Kent State, um, the Ohio, you know, the, the, the four dead in Ohio story. And I knew almost nothing about that, even though I knew that, I mean, I know of the song, I know of the incident, but I couldn't have told you what it was about. And he just does a masterful job of weaving the, these four individual stories into one tragic uh, overarching story and then as far as traditional comics i mean i grew up on i mean being a huge fan of, I mean, i'm a dc guy as you can imagine based on batman um my favorites were justice league because i like groups i like to see how groups work together i like to see how groups split up to tackle different issues both in superhero comics and in life um i also liked a, a team-up comic called the brave and the bold which was batman plus somebody else every issue and there was another one Called DC Comics Presents, which was Superman plus someone else, and there are there are um, there are collected editions of those. I I would recommend them for teachers with kids because 
comics these days, the, the, there are still comics produced for elementary age kids, but a lot of the, the main characters are quite dark, even Superman. I mean, a lot of the stories are quite sophisticated, quite dark. Um, uh, so not the same way when we were kids where it was all kind of for everybody. So if you go back to the stuff that was done in the 70s and 80s, it's, a, you know, it's a bit dated a little. It's a little dated. Um, but I think for kids that like superheroes, they might really like it. Uh, you know, that sometimes it's a one and done story. It's, you don't have to read 20 issues to get a full story. You can read one, which I think for reluctant readers is a little bit more accessible. Uh, nowadays, you, you know, everything's an arc. You know, it's a it's a eight issue arc or a 10 issue arc because they want to they're, they're creating these stories to be bound and sold as graphic novels so they can sell them online and easier. You know, the newsstand business or the buying the individual issue is unfortunately, I don't think going to be around for much longer. Um, once people our age phase out, they're not going to do it for the next generation. They're not buying comics generally. So, um, and then of course there's all the, you know, the ones that don't need my help. You know, there's, there's the Raina, you know, Telgemeier books, the CC Bell, you know, they're doing great things and kids know them already, so they don't need me to plug them, but, um, those are great too. I have a question, not being a connoisseur of comic books and only just watching the movies, which I know is probably horrible for you too. Do you have a favorite superhero? Superman. So it's, it's again, it's, there's this dichotomy throughout my whole childhood, you know, cool and uncool. So Superman, uncool, Batman, cool. Um, DC, uncool, Marvel, cool. Uh, Han Solo, cool. Luke Skywalker, uncool. Um, you know, Fonzie, cool. Richie Cunningham, uncool. I always liked the uncool ones, except I did like um, Han Solo better than Luke. But for the most of the, most, for the most of the, those examples, I was on the, the less cool side. Um, so, yeah. All right, you're gonna have to explain that one because I have my reasons why I would pick Batman over Superman. So why Superman? Because no, I, I I hardcore disagree with you on that. Yeah, one. <laughs> so do most kids. Um, I I think it's a. I mean, a lot of it is just you know who you meet first. And he, I remember being introduced to Superman. It feels like first. But I also like, I mean, you know, the, the Superman that I fell in love with is, is, doesn't exist anymore in a way. Um, you know, he was good for good sake. There wasn't, there was no complexity to it. Um, of course, you know, our culture at the moment and probably forevermore is, is just much more sensitive to all kinds of injustice and differences and, um, uh, you know, sen being sensitive to as much as possible in every direction, which there's, there's certainly greatness there. Uh, Superman, you know, used to, you just, you just had, you just trusted the guy to do the right thing no matter what. And now it's just not as, not as black and white. Um, so I still love him, but I think it's just getting more complicated to be Superman, uh, than, than it used to be. Um, and I love Batman too. Obviously I spend a whole bunch of my life on him too, but, um, I like uh, Superman just seems they both seem like loners. And I think I always was I always uh, was drawn to that. Now they both have why now they're both. It's not, it, you know, things evolve. Now they're mar Superman's married with the son and Batman has Catwoman. But, you know, when I was growing up, they were loners. And I that appealed to me, too, that they would do the right thing, not to get tons of friends and, and to get paid or praised, but just because it was the right thing. And that really resonated with, with me as a, as a kid. And, and 
to help inspire me to write Boys of Steel, my Superman book, is that notion of just do the right thing, even if you don't get all this attention for it or jobs of money or your name on a big, you know, sign or plaque or, you know, something like that. You're just doing it because, you know, in your heart, that's what you should do. And I like that about Superman. And Batman did it too, but it was just, that was Superman's whole, whole essence. All right, that's a fair argument. That's maybe the best argument for Superman I've ever heard. So oh, yeah, I, yeah, I might I might like him a little better than I did a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your Batman take? Well, for me, it's it's a very simple piece of superpowers and not having superpowers. I like Batman because theoretically, like he is a regular human being. Yes, he's empowered by you know, money and access to this technology. But, you know, I kind of liked that he was a an ordinary human being yeah. who just, you know, used innovations and, you know, his own personal sort of drive to mm-hmm. become a superhero. I want to see if I can find, I saved this tweet that for me really summarized Superman in, in a new way, but um, probably I knew it all along innately. So I love this. Superman stories aren't a fantasy about how good it would be to have power. They're a fantasy about what it would be like if someone with power was good. So giving credit where credit's due, this is, I don't even know who this is, but the, it's a, someone on Twitter named Ian McIntyre. So I just love that. That he that- could do whatever he wants. I mean, talk, people talk about Batman that, you know, look what he's doing with no power. But there's a flip side. Look what Superman is not doing with power. I like that take. That's kind of cool. That almost like I might have to pull that into an essential question because I teach um, history and like, you know, we just finished some industrial like Gilded Age, Progressive Era kind of stuff. And a big piece of that was looking at corruption. And so thinking about like people with power, you know, do they do they always abuse it or are there people who use it for good? And so thinking of, yeah. Mm, Yeah. Well, I can send that to you. (laughs) I just never really like you guys have opened my eyes to there's deeper and more complex things than just like the movies that I go to, like looking, I'm definitely going to look at superheroes differently now. It had deep. Yeah, they're they're not for everybody, but I, you know, anybody I think who's into comics realizes that the majority of your comics, whether it's superhero stories or anything else, they're really human stories. They're looking at the human condition and looking at human motivations. And so the social scientist in me always loves them because they're really just kind of who are we at our core and, you know, what are we capable of in good Mm -hmm. and bad ways? Yeah. Well, are there any other books that you want to highlight for teachers that might be listening that you think would be good for them to share with their students? I know you have a a lot of books, but a couple that, oh, you should try this one or try this one. Sure. So I wrote a book called Fairy Spell, which is a true story about two girls in World War I era England who went into the woods one day with a camera, and this was again, World War I era, so this was not a camera like anything we've seen, 
And they came back with only one photo, which one of their fathers developed in the dark room in their house. And that photo revealed one of the two girls with what they said were four fairies. And this kicked off a mystery that lasted for the rest of their lives. So they were, one of them was only nine and one was 16. And they didn't reveal the full truth about what really happened that day in the woods until they were in their 80s. So what I love about this story, I love a lot of things about it. I love that it's about two girls. I love that it's about two girls that have agency. They're driving the story. Um, I love, I can't reveal it because uh, it would spoil the book, but when, it, when they end up telling more of what happened later in life, I love their reason for not telling it sooner. So at first I thought maybe there'd be some, maybe I get some pushback that I'm writing a book about liars. I don't want to say what they said that was true and not true. They said things that I, I, I I'm going to say this so I don't um, spoil the whole thing. In the end, there's, they, they have a different, they, they say something different than each other. Their story was the same for most of those years, but then at the end, they, they diverge. So there is, some, there is some untruth in it, but there's also some truth. And I love how it, it's just a new way of looking at the truth and what is in what we, how we classify truth and what we, how we judge people that don't tell the truth. You know, it's not, they don't all lie for the same reason with the same effect. So I love that. And also it's become, you know, very relevant with, with uh, respect to fake news. Uh, I didn't write it because of that, but it is a great book to use to help children start to discern, you know, the importance of, again, not believing everything you read on, on, at face value um, and learning how to um, verify things, on the, especially on the Internet, whether they're true or not, or whether they need more um, you know, more investigation. So that's a great book for that. And, I, and apparently that's what a lot of people use it for. And there are a lot of lessons these days about that, which is so important, teaching our kids how to be um, internet savvy and how to um, not question everything to the point that you are a conspiracy theorist, but just be, have a healthy, you know, skepticism about things so that you uh, use your brain. And when I say it in the book, you know, some people um, decry the internet saying, that it makes us think less. I think it has to, really, it's making us think more. You really need to, like I just said, um, don't take the first, and I, you know, I tell my kids, we all tell kids. Now, you know, in the last couple of years, when you Google something, Google has a little box at the very top that's in a box that to make you think like that's the definitive be all end all answer. So I tell my kids, well, do you, are you even looking at the source of that? And just because Google says it's true, it doesn't mean it is. So that book is helpful, I think, with that topic. And then I wrote another book um, that's called 30 Minutes Over Oregon, so closer to your side of the country. And that's a true story out of World War II about a Japanese pilot named Nabuo who did something that no one before him or since, luckily, has done. He became the only person in history to bomb the United States mainland from a plane. And the reason that most people have never heard this is because those bombs did not kill anyone didn't even hurt anyone. They hit the forest outside of a town called Brookings. So maybe a couple squirrels did it, but no humans. And because of that, it's not a, a World War II story that we teach. It wasn't a turning point, but that's why I love it. It's a smaller story with a great famous first that is not really famous. And then this emotional core uh, about this pilot and how this act impacted him later in life. So it's a great story about um, 
how enemies can become friends. I don't want to say too much, but he does come back to America after the war. And it's about something that you don't see in picture books too much, at least I haven't seen it in nonfiction picture books, and that is redemption, this, the idea of redemption. Most picture books that, folk, that are biographical, they follow the same arc. They start in someone's childhood. The child has a dream. The child tries and fails multiple times, and eventually the book ends with this person becoming the famous person that we all know. Again, be it, you know, with Bader Ginsburg or Babe Ruth or whomever, there's, I don't need to name famous people, you all know them. But that's, and that's fine. But I don't, I prefer different kinds of stories. So I prefer a story that's not quite as predictable where maybe they, I mean, the Batman story is about a guy that basically started off as a success and then the ending is that he failed. So it's kind of a bummer, but that's life sometimes. And we need to tell kids that. He did a great thing. He should, he should be honored for it. But in the end, he didn't really benefit from it. And it was a sad story. And that's okay. It's okay to have a sad story. So the, the uh, 30 Minutes Over Oregon book is a great story about redemption, about how, I mean, now it's especially, I think, a topic in the news and in life is about second chances. I mean, people are, you know, I see a lot of people that are not given a second chance. They, they misspeak. Um, they something comes up from their past from sometimes even as young as being a teenager. And that completely changes the entire trajectory of their adult life. And there are times where, you know, second chances are definitely less viable. But I think for a lot of these cases, they're not. And this is a story about that. Um, in today's world, you know, this man's story would, he would have not been given a second chance and he would have been a villain for the rest of his life. So I love this idea of you know, seeing them at a human level, in this case, you know, he was doing something during war and you don't excuse that, but it was a war and everyone was doing things that they would prefer not to be doing. And he um, did uh, spend a lot of years trying to atone for that and show his true nature. And so re re reconciliation, redemption, very powerful, very powerful ideas that again, you don't see that often. And at least I don't see them in picture books. I hope they're out there. I just haven't seen them myself. So those two, I think, really help with a lot of different le levels of lessons in classrooms, character development, and of course, the news thing is more, you know, a practical skill. I love that. I think I know what books I'm picking up next. Um, <laughs> and hopefully I can get through them before maybe I hit some units where I could use those in my classes. Because, uh, you know, again, I'm a history teacher. I can totally use those. Um, Thank you. So. We're at that point where, who are some of your heroes? Heroes in general or? Well, certainly educational heroes if you have them, but if you yeah. wanna go a different route and just focus on anybody who's inspired you, who is your hero in what you do, you can go broader if that suits you better. Sure, well, um, I can do a two in one, I can do, a personal hero and an educator hero, which is my mom, who was a teacher before I was born. So I, I ruined that. She gave up when I came along. Um, but she is just, she's had a really, really challenging life for different reasons, but she turned out to be the sweetest mom. I mean, except for your two moms um, of all time. And with no, with no guidance, she, she you know, she didn't have, a loving upbringing where she had something to learn from. I don't know where she gets it from. 
And so, and she was also someone that, you know, helped shape my creative side. When we were young, my sister and I, my mother would not give us coloring books because she felt we should start with a blank page that we should create from nothing. And so after a while, I think we wore it down a bit. And as long as we still drew on blank pages as well, but she didn't want us to be given someone else's work and then fill it in. Um, and she also nudged me to be a, that she saw that I could be a writer before I did, which is typical mom. You know, she knew that I, what I was good at or what I had an aptitude for and probably what I liked, even though I didn't realize it. And she nudged me that way. And then again, as this is going to be no surprise uh, about a guy who liked Superman, Richie Cunningham, DC Comics, um, better than their opposite, which is that I have a lot of teachers um, that not only were inspirational for me, but that I'm still in touch with. Um, I mean, most people I know, if they're in touch with anyone, it's just one teacher. I'm in touch with, I mean, not regular touch, but I have emails and reach out on a, I would say on a, you know, somewhat regular basis to say hi to a number of teachers. So, um, and, you know, sometimes it's very vague why they resonate with me, but I, they must have, they must have helped shape me. I can't always figure out why I'm so, you know, back drawn to them still. But a couple in particular are, you know, are, you know, were formidable are not formidable, formative, form, probably formidable too, formative for me. And I love that because they are so, that's such a thankless um, job for so many. And I, it just, for me, it's very gratifying to, you know, all these years later to just have this relationship so that they know that they mattered to me and probably to others that don't, don't, <laughs> aren't as, you know, obsessive about these things as I am reaching out and keeping in touch. So that means a lot to me for teachers that I had that had an impact for them to know that they did even here in my old age. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're all definitely going to have to check out so many more books. I loved your cliffhangers. And if you have not registered for Mark Tyler Nobleman's sessions yet, now you got to go find out about the Batman story too. So thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you in February at CCIRA. I cannot wait. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you both in person. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to CCIRA.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook where we also have a members only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.